Stas, John, thanks so much uh, for joining me here on our uh, panel discussions here and our security sessions. Uh, today, I brought both of you together. I think you both bring uh, great insight and perspective on the idea of compliance, um, particularly when it comes to security compliance. Um, and I'd love to go through a couple uh, couple points here, see what you guys think about them, how you guys look at uh, kind of different topics within uh, the compliance realm and uh, you know share your knowledge and your experience. So thanks for joining me. Uh, John, if you wouldn't mind starting, maybe uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing, what you're working on. Thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is John Albay, based out of London. I um, currently work for EY as a senior manager in the technology risk practice. Um, a lot of my experience is working across a range of organizations looking at secure, information security, uh, compliance audits, across what we call system and organization control uh, uh, examinations. So that can be SOC 1 for ICFR and SOC 2 in terms of the sort of uh, contractual provision of services that service organizations give to their customers. So Essentially, I order these service organizations, uh, typically that provide services to a range of customers, and that is aligned to either financial year-end, if it's a SOC 1, or aligned to actually uh, the, the specific customer's review period under examination. Um, that's me in a nutshell. Um, as I say, currently it's busy season, so working across a, a range of customers to provide financial year-end uh, attestation reports. Very good. Well, I uh, appreciate you making some time for us uh, during your busy season. Uh, very much appreciated. And uh, Stas, maybe a little uh, intro about yourself as well. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Stas Pajuka. I'm the CEO and founder of Compile. Um, my if, my background is information security. I have about 20 years of experience in this space. I've got pretty much every certification. Uh, and uh, you know, my background is information security compliance in financial services. Cool. Very good. Well, uh, thank you as well for being here. So I, I kind of want to start at the beginning. I don't want to leave any uh, any room for interpretation here. So let's just start with kind of you know compliance in, in a kind of a look through the lens of security. Um, John, maybe you can kind of start walking us through this. Why are there security frameworks? Why are they important? Um, what, what where did this kind of come from? Um, maybe you could uh, start start just there. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question in terms of, you know, compliance against what we kind of see as a security framework as such. Um, I'll try to avoid a lot of acronyms, but, you know, from a, a very sort of foundational level, it's a, an appreciation of, you know, what assets are, are most prized for an organization. That could be residing sort of customer held data. It could be intellectual property. It could just be personal data related to the organization as well. Um, so from that perspective, it's understanding that there's a, a broad principle or an understanding of information security governance and how to make sure it's restricted to the uh, appropriate personnel that need access to that data and the underlying uh, systems that support it. So from that perspective, um, aligning to security frameworks, there's obviously a lot of sort of different international standards out there, but it's trying to understand from an organization perspective what the level of maturity, what they're trying to get to in terms of achieve their, their sort of objectives. Um, but it's, it's it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach, and that's what I was going to say in terms of there's not necessarily one unique standard that you need to comply with, but just an understanding of information security governance and awareness among the sort of organization, the, the personnel that are handling data, and what their obligations are to not just the company, but to their customers in the, in the context of contractual obligations, so handling client data, what is the categories of sensitive data, and how that neatly defines into a framework. Um, I, I can touch upon frameworks as such, but um, but Stars, I don't know if you've got any inputs there in terms of what the sort of bedrocks are. Um, no, I think I, I mean I think that that's a pretty good high level summary of. Um, um, I mean it's it's essentially 
it's, it's a report of attesting that an organization is doing what they're supposed to be doing and ensuring that a third party has reviewed it and uh, confirmed it. Um, there are different levels, right? So a SOC 2 um, is, a SOC 2 and SOC 1 are, uh, are self um are self-imposed uh controls um obviously they have to be within a certain guideline that have to be met where other things are more stringent like the iso um and you know regulations like gdpr ccpa um um those are more you know those are mandated um so they they have more uh more insight um and um uh, more stringency around them yeah. yeah no i i think sorry dan i think from my perspective as well in terms of frameworks you know when I said it's a one, not a one size fits all, it's understanding, okay, how do we get the sort of predominant sort of structure in place? What do we mean? So it should be sort of ground up in terms of policies and procedures in order for people to adhere to. So there needs to be a sort of central vision, which is a top down approach from, from management, the board of directors, the stakeholders that are ultimately accountable to their investors and their customer client base. So we do typically see a lot of sort of different frameworks being applied. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you want me to kind of go into it too much detail, but, but typically what we see is a lot of sort of reference to COBIT. So that's the Control Objectives for Information and Related Technology. Uh, another acronym is the ITIL framework. That's the Information Technology and Infrastructure Library. Uh, we also see, as second, um, as Saz as, as actually referred to as well, in terms of the ISO um, series as well, typically 27,001. Um, and essentially what we see there is a, a solid framework for uh, people trying to achieve what would be a internationally um, recognized level of uh, governance with respect to information security. So there are various different layers, um, but that's what we typically see in the marketplace in terms of security frameworks. There are uh, various different flavors to it. We've got the National Institute of Standards and Technologies. We've also got High Trust um, and COSO framework as well. A lot of acronyms there, but you know, to try and get the security framework in place, it's important that um, people understand, okay, what's my objectives? How's that aligned? Um, and what's the, what's the sort of profile of the organization as well are we limited to a domestic audience do we actually have any third-party dependencies where does our data reside a lot of companies have traditional data centers which host their information or they potentially have their data that resides in the cloud so that could be a whole range of different sort of you know it could be google cloud it could be aws azure how do we make sure that our information is locked down what are our obligations in the context of that as well and that is all drawn out of comparison to a security framework and mapping out the boundaries of the responsibility in terms of the organization that handles the data, but also in terms of what we would call those vendors, those third party dependencies and what their obligations are. And how do we how do we actually have a continuous monitoring process and improvement plan to track against that? That's what we typically see from a, from a security framework standpoint. Thank you, man. Pretty thorough. <laughs> That's very thorough. <laughs> well, John, you know, I think um, from one of the things I wanted to kind of gain some knowledge from from your perspective here was, you know, organizations at all different sizes, um, right? Like, like they they start to align with these frameworks. And let's say you're a startup. Uh, maybe you're having your uh, admin assistant kind of like start going down this road for you, or uh, you know, you, you're making your first security hire because. You, you have no knowledge of how these things work, but right, you, yeah. you know, you're kind of really struggling and you need to align with these frameworks. I'm curious, just when do you think, is there a time, is it growth, um, is it revenue, when an organization kind of starts um, taking security a little more serious, building out a team, maybe bringing some consultants in, maybe considering some uh, software security, uh, security software, 
Is, is there anything that you typically see or, or as a, a common denominator for that? Yeah, I think from my perspective and, and focusing on startups, so my, my background, I probably should have mentioned as part of an introduction as well as I, I work with a lot of startups. So when it starts to become a, a sort of objective is actually it's a barrier to, to growth if you don't have the fundamentals in place from an information security governance. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily talk about headcount in terms of revenue or sales, but it's more around, okay, I'm going to going to business. I'm obviously want to try and build that trust, that reputation in the marketplace. My brand is very important. I need to make sure that I've got the actual information security governance in place to corroborate our reputation and how we're actually going to make sure that we're compliant against a, an, you know, an internationally recognized standard. So um, I would say, given the importance in, in the modern day in terms of all the various different threats and vulnerabilities that exist out there and the implications that can be from having any sort of material weaknesses from a security governance, I would say from, 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 from day one, if people are conscious that they need to be compliant against the security framework or have an appetite, if they haven't got the actual expertise in-house, they should look to either recruit or they should have an external information security partner who can assist them in that journey to understanding, okay, where are we at from day one? What's the maturity um, timelines in terms of preparation, in terms of what resources do we need to have in place? Fundamentally understanding the landscape that you're operating in, not just the actual service line or industry, but understanding what assets are under your management and what's the prized possessions. I, I've mentioned on the on the previous question in terms of intellectual property, that's your sort of you know unique selling point, that's your intellectual data that you've built up. You want to make sure that's appropriately locked down and um, not going to be sort of you know a competitive threat to other people that would try and sort of uh, have malicious uh, intentions to use that data. But similarly, in terms of contractual obligations, how are you compliant? against various frameworks we talk about gdpr considerations privacy as well we need to make sure that you know if you're looking after client data and sensitive data how are you complying to make sure that you've got the the actual preventative controls in place and detective controls to make sure that the data is locked down securely within your own environment and network so i think from my perspective it's it's not, not necessarily um, the, the profile of the organization, it's, you know, what are their objectives and do they have an, uh, an understanding of what the implications are being by not having a security um, governance framework in place. So I think from day one, there should be that understanding and there should be the expertise to support that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Stas, what are what are your kind of thoughts around just the, the general idea of uh, as an organization's maturing, adopting certain frameworks, um, are there any frameworks that, that kind of come to mind to you? I, I know it's kind of a tough question because, you know, industry regions uh, are going to play into this. But for instance, like a SOC 2, right? Um, that's something that's not mandatory, more of um, something an organization is going to pursue to kind of maybe get a better feel of their security posture. Maybe they're doing it to prove assurances to their vendors, um, trying to close some further deals. Um, is 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 a SOC 2, you know, do, do you think, is it enough? Is it enough for an organization, Stas, or or is it just kind of scratching the surface? It, it depends, right? I mean, like I said before, it is objective and it is, um, you know, it, it is open to, to a lot more interpretation than, in terms of something like NIST-CSF, which is a lot more stringent. And even the NIST-CSF is a very good, uh, is, is really good to be used as, uh, as potentially a gap assessment. It's very clear in terms of what the requirements are. It's very clear in terms of, uh, of maturity scoring. Um, and it just gives uh, organizations a good 
um, you know, a good indication of where they are at a certain period of time and something to work off of and something to track over a period of time. Um, I think there is something to be said, like I, security has to be included in an, org in an organization right from the get-go, like anything else like HR, um, you know, you wouldn't set up a new company without, without having, um, you know, payroll and HR set up or having your accounting set up or um, a way to pay your taxes and things like that. So like, why would, why would security be any different? The only difference between um, you know, the SOC 2 perspective of, the, of all of this is um, when getting an accreditation, like I completely agree that we need, you need a governance framework and you need like an information security management system, full stop. It's just like when that company is actually mature enough and has a product that's mature enough to go to market, that's when they should probably consider actually getting someone to go over it as a third party and review it and make sure that it's okay. Like what we're, like what I've been recently seeing is um, companies are getting accreditations for, for half-finished products or products that are still in development or that they're completely willing. And I've heard a lot of people say that this is the proper way to go. It's just like if you're assuring somebody that you have a SOC 2 for an unfinished product or product that's still in design, like that doesn't really hold a lot of water. And I don't like in my opinion. Um, so so I fully so I fully agree that um, you know you need you need a management pro you need a management governance process right from the beginning. Um, when you actually get someone to actually come in and take a look at it and say that you know stamp stamp of approval to say that it's good to go for clients is you know is is debatable for me. Um, but that's my take on it. Yeah, no, I completely agree, Stas. And the benefits of the SOC two report, you know, it's it's a snapshot of the business at a point in time. It goes through all the various different domains. If we look at Common, common criteria for security. There's nine different domains and that impacts organization controls, risk assessments, internal audit, logical and physical access, software development lifecycle as well. It has to be in production because if you look at a SOC 2 report, that's an attestation opinion, which talks about something that's actually live in a, a business as usual capacity. So from my perspective, what I've seen and, and what I do for a lot of clients is it helps build that trust but, you know, give them that independent assurance. Um, but but as Stas mentioned, where they come in terms of maturity, if you've only got potentially, you know, a small client base, maybe it's not necessarily beneficial to jump straight into the SOC 2. You might just want to potentially um, have that framework in place. And then what you'll see continually as part of the RFP process or part of a sort of contractual obligation is that they need an annual independence certification against an established standard such as SOC 2. Um, we do see ISO 27001, but that's... That that's you know it's it's subject to the interpretation of the the, the value in intrinsic value related to the uh, accreditation. Certain sort of clients have to provide evidence of the ISO twenty seven thousand and one yep. certification. Some have to provide evidence of the SOC two. What we're seeing at the moment is a combination of both. Actually, there's a lot of sort of um, demand in the marketplace for SOC two accreditation plus ISO twenty seven thousand one, just because it gives you that granular detail of the processes in place. Um, won't go into too much in terms of the description of system, the controls, but you can see it's a very sort of um, comprehensive exercise as it relates to information security governance um, and, and having that independent sense check. And, you know, you can go through the various different iterations, readiness assessment, what we call a type one assessment, where you look at the design alone. And then what you go into an annual recertification where you look at the, the, the actual operation of those controls it could be six nine 12 months as well so yeah that's what we we typically see from that standpoint for sure and, and just to piggyback off of that like i you know my experience with this has also been that organizations they although they might prefer a sock uh you know sock one or sock two type two there are often uh mitigating circumstances that they can use a questionnaire like something like a sig or an atic questionnaire to mitigate those as well 
Um, so it's not, you know, it's not the be all and end all if you don't have one, um, but uh, there are other ways around it. And oftentimes, depending on the quality of the SOC 2 uh, or the, the, you know, the quality, well, we'll say the SOC 2 because they are so pretty prescriptive, um, but uh, there are oftentimes there are those follow-up questions, even if you do have a SOC 2 type 2, depending on the quality um, of the report and the quality of the auditor, um, there are oftentimes additional follow-up questions. Yeah. Interesting. Big fan of SOC 2, Staz, as you say. And and, and yeah. probably one of the benefits, sorry, apologies, you touched up on it then, Staz, in terms of vendor questionnaires. The, the beauty of a SOC 2, for example, is it's a standardized report, which um, satisfies a broad range of users. So it can be an integrated audit at one point in time to address all the various different considerations or security related questionnaires from your client base. So you can give them the SOC 2 to address those vendor security questionnaires, um, as opposed to obviously just giving it to your existing client base because it's a contractual obligation. Um, you can give it prospectively as well to those customers, um, but it's a principle-based methodology. So it's not necessarily rigid. And what we see with some sort of frameworks, um, I won't mention any particularly, but it can be applied to various different instances and industries based on what your risk appetite is and what you consider um, a, a risk centric focus from it from an audit standpoint. So it gives you these points of focus as opposed to a dogmatic um, binary pass or fail situation, which is what we've seen previously in, in, in older iterations of international framework standards. Very cool. You know, I'm, I'm curious, um, and John, I'll start with you. The the explosion of the audit preparation uh, software solutions that we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, some are great, some are not great, some do a good job, some are a checkbox. Uh, just curious, you know, from the integrity angle of it, um, do you think that's, you know, do you think there's going there, there's a space for that? Is it is our organizations maybe, you know, my perspective sometimes is that organizations are are led a little astray thinking. Um, you know, they're going to rush over the line for a SOC 2, let's say they get that rubber stamp, they think they're secure, they don't really have anyone maybe in the organization that understands the risk of thinking you're secure when you truly don't have security. Um, yeah. But anyway, just wanted to know what, what you thought about them. Uh, that, that yeah. Kind of um, it's a really good question. Sometimes when you talk around getting accredited, achieving compliance with an international standard such as SOC 2 um, report and, and have a SOC 2 report in, in place, it's most important to actually make sure that from my perspective, the due diligence. So, you know, what I have seen in the marketplace is potentially people submitting data um, using potentially a cookie cutter approach um, where they give you a sort of defined sort of output based on the information provided. But as I mentioned, in terms of the SOC 2, what I've seen typically and what worked best is having that sort of collaborative exercise, understanding the organization, the actual end-to-end uh, -end processes, which you don't get necessarily from just submitting a, a bunch of data and requests to fit your profile uh, without having those detailed discussions, understanding the intricacies of the operations in place and making sure that you control descriptions reflect the current day environment. So, you know, typically when I speak to customers that are looking to embark on the SOC 2 journey, I'm interested in the policy and procedures, but I'm also interested in what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, how the process owners actually execute their controls and what the little sort of quirks and caveats are and exceptions. Because ultimately, when you look at control appetite and description, how that's been executed on a daily basis, there will be those various different sort of touch points and um, dependencies that aren't necessarily fully manifested when you, you submit your data to a, a platform that would generate an output based on what the, the, the actual expected outcome would be. So, so yeah, I think... From my perspective, I haven't necessarily had too much uh, interaction with those uh, approaches purely because 
you need to really have a, a thorough understanding of the organization, understanding of the various different departments, not just IT, but, you know, looking at the sort of um, C-suite, looking at the sort of HR sales uh, operations, um, any sort of, you know, uh, overlap in terms of the responsibilities and who takes ultimate accountability. So it's a lot more sort of pervasive than, than just submitting the data from that perspective. Um, and if we look at the sort of, you know, the current landscape, as we mentioned, you know, organizations of 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 a lot bigger magnitude than sort of startups as we mentioned have been compromised recently if you look at log4j the vulnerability that impacted from my perspective a whole range of what we would call quite mature organizations it impacted homeland security state commerce and treasury for example uh it impacted a lot of clients that already had well-established security frameworks they had preventative sort of um security instant events monitoring uh logged in as well and they were still able to penetrate and 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 expose certain vulnerabilities and organizations networks so you know from that perspective irrespective of the maturity landscape there's that continuous improvement which i'm not sure you would get from submitting it just onto a, a platform that would generate predefined criteria yeah it makes a lot of sense i mean i i think you know organizations uh hopefully and and i i think generally do want to get to that space of like that continuous compliance right where they're kind of just turning over day over day week over week month over month versus kind of just like the snapshot because the snapshot in time right like that allows for um you know risk in the in between right when when you didn't prepare for that uh kind of audit period um stas what do you think um i'm sure it's pretty broad but what do you think are the Kind of risks associated with just kind of an organization relying on preparing for audits um, and not truly adopting that uh, continuous compliance kind of philosophy. Uh, I mean, this this happens all the time, right? I mean, the, um, the vast majority, say the vast majority, but a good portion of companies, right? I mean, this is this is what they do, right? Um, audits done, they drop they drop everything, go back to you know to back to what they were working on, and then you know audit time comes around, and they're all scrambling to get all the information together um, and trying to uh, find evidence of of them, um, you know, doing what they said they were going to be doing throughout the year. Um, and this, you know, this is pretty, um, pretty commonplace still. Um, this, I mean, the vast majority of companies that are looking to implement continuous compliance is that they're looking to, um, they're looking to actually have some cost savings and time and time spending, um, or sorry, some time back in terms of, uh, you know, how much time they spend at the end of the year or at the beginning of the year, putting all this data together. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it, it is something that should be kept up and it is something that continuously needs to be running and looked at and reviewed. Um, but it has to be done in a way that it's it's uh, it's practical um, for people to review it easily and digest the data and to, to stay on top of things. They have to there has to be something there has to be something beneficial that comes out of out of continuous compliance. Um, if it's just, uh, you know, if it's just um you know tedious reporting and uh the process is really manual or it's really difficult to do it's obviously going to fall behind that's why it has to be repeatable and automated um in order for it to work yeah just building on Stas's point there as well it, it can't be sort of checklist driven purely um it, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach it needs to be strategically aligned to the objectives Thanks. of the organization yeah exactly so you know uh, and what I've seen from from Stas's sort of input as well for organizations is that you know continuous improvement, but it's also exception reporting. You have that baseline um in place from a security governance standpoint where you actually get to that level of maturity where you're just looking at the exceptions and, and actually focusing the attention on okay, what are the key risks? Because we've actually covered 
you know, to, to, to a large degree, our, our sort of general sort of accepted risks at threshold appetite. And you're having those sort of, it enriches the discussions with management and buy-in from, from all the stakeholders, notably the uh, the CTO, CIO, COO, or the, the C-suite. They need to understand, okay, what are the threats and vulnerabilities impacting us um, currently? And having that sort of exception monitoring and that underlying baseline, where if any deviations from that baseline are in place, then, then that's going to, enhance the overall appreciation of why you have an information security um, position and a compliance platform um, that that is focused purely on enriching the, the level of conversation and also addressing the, the most critical uh, threats and vulnerabilities to the organization. Yeah. Absolutely. And like the, the if there is tooling, right, the tooling should be seen as an enhancement to your existing processes, right? It shouldn't be the be all and end all. Um, like, and it should be flexible enough to adapt, to be adaptable to new customer environments. Like literally had a customer this morning where they, we got, we got a flag this morning, uh, which threw me off uh, and I, you know, it was instantly raised and then I showed it to them and they were just like, oh yeah, that's normal. We just set up a new customer and that for that one particular customer, we're allowed to do that. But if it happens on any other customer environments where we're in, you know, it is going to be a big problem for us. But uh, it's those type of, it's these type of things that happen all the time, right? Especially in like the fast, like fast moving, ever changing uh, world of cloud-based technology and SaaS solutions, right? Things change all the time. Um, so you need solutions that are uh, configurable and adaptable to, to customer environments, but quickly um, and in, in a continuous compliance uh, methodology. Yeah, precisely. And as you said, Stas, you know, it's 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 making sure you've got the scoping right in terms of, you know, where does the infrastructure reside? This might be a misperception by some people saying, well, I've got my data residing in an S3 repository in AWS. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but that's, you know, a, a hosted uh, sort of platform. It doesn't necessarily look at the security configurations, doesn't look at actually who has access to my data. How is that locked down based on the provision of services from, from AWS, for example? It could be from Microsoft Azure. How are we making sure that the access to that data is appropriately restricted and it's compliant with our contractual obligations? And it might be a regulatory obligation as well if we look at the various different jurisdictions that you operate in. So it's it's making sure that you have, you know, the, the risk is, is that you're not scoping in all these sort of assets under your operations that are exposing you from a from a regulatory or contractual obligation to make sure you're handling data in alignment with those contractual clauses that you've signed up to. Um, in terms of any other additional risks when preparing for security as well, I think, as we mentioned, you've got the sort of proprietary sort of platform that you can use, that continuous monitoring, but making sure that there's the appropriate resource allocation. We talked about C-suite, we talked about maybe information security managers, but there needs to be appropriate um, experienced if that's, you know, in-house or it's outsourced. They need to be well-versed in what the obligations are. If I look at one example in terms of, okay, from our infrastructure, we have a patch, but you have a patch based on vendor releases, right? This is what they said we should do as part of best practice or ad hoc basis. But are you patching the ones that are related to actually there's a vulnerability scan and it threw up a whole mm -hmm. bunch of exceptions? Are you looking at that? That might not necessarily be something which, the, the you know, you can be told or, or, or that you can land a vendor to give that time information. So if we look at Warcry, that impacts the whole range of of, uh, of of customers, you know, um, a couple of years ago, there was several sort of um, public um, sort of uh, agencies that were held at ransom to their data. You know, we had hospitals that couldn't access their patient records because of being compromised for having legacy infrastructure in place. They didn't have the vulnerability um, functionality or, or function technology in place to to really sort of make sure that they were compliant and had the latest versions installed. So it's making sure you have the resource allocation, the scope right, but also that continuous platform to make sure you're looking at the exceptions as and when they occur. So yeah, that would be my... 
I think there literally was just an incident this morning where a hospital literally went back to pen and paper because all their systems are down. Like literally this happened like an hour ago. in Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, I was just like, just looking for that because that popped up on like just before we jumped on this call that popped up on yeah. my radar. So interesting yeah. that you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, honestly, yeah, it's very, it's very topical, but it's, it's one of those ones where, and as you said, in terms of the, the, the appetite for risk management and then information security governance, often more than not it's a case of when you're going to be compromised not if you know um, it's in breach, right and it's now assumed it's it's now assumed breach right and now mitigate yeah, yeah exactly exactly john I'm, I'm curious before we wrap up um you know 2022 uh is wrapping up here uh we're almost halfway through the month uh gonna switch over right into the new year anything from this past year consistencies you've seen um from a compliance standpoint that you think uh maybe an organization needs to consider uh, as they move into 2023? Um, anything front of mind? Um, I think from my perspective, there is uh, a couple sort of themes and, and I've sort of touched on one or two before, but if you look at this sort of linkages in terms of the third party dependencies, um, the traditional data center is not as popular these days, depending on the organization. It's understanding, okay, what's the actual profile in terms of okay I'm, my data my customers data is potentially hosted in, in a third party cloud provider for example how am I making sure that I'm compliant against not just my contractual obligations but the obligations from the actual cloud provider itself there's sometimes a disconnect in terms of where the boundaries of responsibility lie based on your relationship with that cloud infrastructure provider so I would like to see and what we do see from from this year going to next is as people make that digital transformation economies of scale go into the cloud hosting environment they want to make sure that actually am I actually compliant with what the cloud hosted provider is not just with my obligations to the customer it's understanding okay, how am I looking at those um, SOC 1, SOC 2 reports from AWS, from Microsoft Azure, from Google um, Cloud, for example? How am I tightening and defining the security standards that are compliant with their expectations as well and handling the data? Um, and also what I see at the moment is, you know, information security governance. We've talked a lot about technologies in terms of, uh, you know, the, the stack that you have in place, patching requirements against uh, threats and vulnerabilities, but a greater appreciation from information security governance. So we see a lot from phishing attempts, hacking attempts in terms of people's actual desktops. We can rely on endpoint protection and encryption of data, but making sure that actually all my are my, are my staff actually aware of what the obligations are? Can they actually determine what's a, a genuine email or what's a, a phishing attempt for a malicious agent to actually compromise the network? We see that continually as well. So that's something which, you know, we do see people having not just the annual uh, information security awareness, but continuous monitoring, continuous testing of, uh, uh, of people's um, thresholds for, for those risks coming through uh, emails on a, on a daily basis. So there's sort of a couple of sort of key themes. And also in terms of lastly, from my perspective is information security isn't going away. If anything, it's 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 going to be a top agenda. Um, cybersecurity is one of the sort of top agendas at the C-suite level. It's not just pervasive from a contractual obligation, but if you look at sort of traditional financial statement accounting, it's okay, what's the brand reputational image? Um, what's the risk not having a uh, up-to-date information security governance model in place and a continuous improvement? If you look, for example, from not just the, the the risk of loss of IP, but it's also, you know, the cost 
associated to a, uh, a cybersecurity hack and the time to remediate it. There could be service credits, there could be potential lawsuits, there could be fines from regulatory agencies. If we look at GDPR, for example, still under the EU's Data Protection Act, you know, companies can potentially um, face fines of up to 20 million or potentially 4% of the worldwide turnover, uh, whichever is higher. So there's that sort of real existence sort of legislation in place. Um, and associated with that, there could be higher insurance premiums. You know, if you have had a hack and it's been a, you know, publicly made aware that you haven't got this sort of, you know, um, security uh, governance in place, and then potentially loss of productivity from your staff who are actually having to deal with firefighting on a daily basis with the information security governance, the cybersecurity remediation, um, and ultimately that feeds into the brand reputational damage risks uh, inherently there as well. So I think it's just having that sort of, you know, people process technology and understanding that the the the, the landscape is a Evolving. There's a lot more sort of, you know, sophisticated um, attacks uh, every day. And how do you lock that down? How do you identify it? How do you isolate it and go through your sort of information security sort of framework to address that? Yeah. Well, that's a, it's a, it's a lot of insight. Yeah. <laughs> that's very comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah. Stas, anything, anything John uh, left off his list? Uh, no, I think that, I think John pretty much covered all the, the entire list. Um, no, I mean, uh, it's more or less going to be the same, right? I mean, it's it like the whole every all the breaches that we're that we're seeing, right? I mean, apart from uh, a few uh, state-sponsored, um, you know, hacking attempts or like APTs, um, advanced persistent threats, like the majority of the stuff is all coming back to fundamentals, right? It's like not having fundamentals in place um, in, in terms of not having fundamental policies or standards in place, and therefore people not following processes. So when they're spinning up new machines, they're leaving their S3 buckets on the block or on, uh, open to the, to the public, and uh, there's no monitoring on top of that. Like um, we're talking about not doing proper vendor due diligence. We're talking about like um, not having a proper risk management program because it's boring and nobody wants to do it. But yeah, it's super valuable once you actually get going. Like it's all it's been. I mean, it's been a broken record. Um, I mean, the industry has moved on quite a bit in the past five years, but a lot of this stuff is still very much a broken record of, of just people not being able to implement or maintain fundamentals in an organization um, because it's not a one and done um, in in this industry. It's a, you have to water and nurture it um, and take care of it. And that that's, you know, uh, we have tools to help with that, but and someone has to still do it. Yeah, completely agree, Stas. I think it's getting back to the grassroots, irrespective of how we evolve and the technology stacks that are deployed from an information security governance. It's the traditional risk and controls. They don't fundamentally change. They're just they're, they're you know presented in, in different sort of facets uh, on, on a continuous basis. So um, I completely, it's music to my ears in terms of hearing that as well, Stas. Awesome. There you go. Great. Well, uh, John, Stas, thank you both uh, for diving into this kind of chat here. Uh, really insightful. A lot of, a lot of great uh, kind of information covered here. Um, I appreciate it. And I'm sure the viewers will as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys.